Today's Plugged In podcast is sponsored by Volvo Cars Canada. The Volvo XC40 Recharge is Volvo's first pure electric SUV. It's a powerful drive with no tailpipe emissions featuring more than 400 horsepower and up to 335 kilometers on a single charge. And the integrated Google OS will always keep you fully connected, even without your phone. It truly is an SUV designed for the city and the rest of the planet. Visit volvocars.ca to learn more. Welcome to the latest episode of Plugged In, post-media podcast taking you down Canada's electric vehicle highway. I'm your host, Andrew McCready. I like to consider myself someone who was early to the electric vehicle revolution, having started to cover the segment around 2010, when Tesla's only vehicle was the Roadster, and the Nissan Leaf was just a rumor and still a year away from being produced. By then, my guest today was already a 20-year veteran of the EV industry, first working as a powertrain engineer for Honda, testing battery cells and packs, and from 2007 to 2013 at Tesla Motors, where among other things, he was implementing most of the battery management system algorithms in the Roadster and Model S. Since 2017, Anil Periani has been the chief executive officer of Automotive Power, a Southern California-based company he founded that designs battery management system hardware and software and provides charging solutions for all types of e-mobility. His lengthy resume speaks to his expertise and his front-row seat actually more like a backstage pass, to the electric vehicle industry gives him unique perspective and insight into where we have come from, where we are, and where we are going. Before we kind of dive into battery technology and all that wonderful stuff, uh, let's start out with asking you the first EV you ever drove and your impressions of it at the time. I drove in 1992... Uh, Honda EV uh, with lead acid batteries. It was called the Q4. It weighed 3,600 pounds, and I think we got about 25 miles range on it. It was very slow, cumbersome, and uh, not that exciting. That was never a production model. I take it that was more of an experimental uh, vehicle? Correct, although it did go out in some limited fleet usage. And and what was your what was your impression at the time? I mean, what were you did you did you sit in this thing and drive it and think, my God, this is the future? I was ecstatic. I was uh, an electrical engineer. I was a car enthusiast. That's what got me into Honda. I was also an environmentalist, so I was excited to um, to feel an electric vehicle for the first time. I got to say, a few weeks later, I drove uh, AC propulsion prototype, which ultimately Tesla licensed. And that blew my socks away. I wanted to buy that one, even though I worked for Honda. <laughs> right. So what was it about it? I mean, was the, the quietness, the acceleration, a bit of both? Uh, the AC propulsion was not quiet. That was a, a noisy rocket, gear noise, wind noise. Uh, there was no sound insulation. So it was everything you thought an EV couldn't be at that time. And But me being a sports car person, I loved that, the feel of that. The Honda... EV was kind of a comfortable, quiet, slow. Zero sixty was like sixteen seconds or something like that. So, not that exciting, but it was emission free. So that was great back then. 
Yeah. So um, I've asked that question of every um, um, guest I've had, and I've never had one date that far back. So it's uh, it's usually it's a Tesla Roadster or I mean, that's about it in terms of dating back. I think I had one do the EV one. Uh, so you win the prize for the oldest EV driven. Oh, wow. OK. Well, yeah, you're dating me then. <laughs> <laughs> So, so in covering uh, new EVs being brought to market by automakers, many journalists, myself included, tend to focus on the kilowatt hour size of the battery packs. But packs of the same size often have different ranges. Why is that? I mean, how, how do you explain that? There's definitely a lot of know-how and vehicle efficiency. And, you know, I, I was at Tesla for six years. Um, there's a fundamental physics. It's aerodynamics and rolling resistance. And there's a lot of tricks that uh, Tesla uh, knows and I think the other OEMs know as well um, and how to optimize that. And that's why you get different ranges. You were at Tesla from 2007 to 2013, um, a critical time in that company's evolution. Obviously, that was really when the kind of DNA of their um, battery management system was put together. What role did you have with the company then? I was the first uh, engineer in charge of the battery management system. So up to that point, there was a very smart software engineers, very smart electrical engineers that put something together. Um, it was pretty amazing when I joined because I had access to all this data. There's only seven vehicles, but I had uh, access to this wiki page that pointed me to all the schematics. And uh, I had, of course, all the software then was in this thing called SVN. And so I, within three days, I knew exactly uh, what needed to be done and I did it. And what did you do? <laughs> well, I could say, well, you know, that was for the Tesla Roadster. And um, the first challenge there was uh, measuring state of charge. And, I, I, you know, um, maybe one of the questions is what is a battery management system? And, uh, this is uh, my question to people who claim they're battery management system experts. Right? Well, what is what is the BMS? Is what we say. Do right. and what's his first job? And uh, a lot of people say it's to manage state of charge. And although that was what I first did at Tesla, it's actually first job is to make sure the battery is safe. And so, but at uh, for Tesla at the Roadster, they were having challenges uh, keeping the state of charge uh, accurate. And of course, the state of charge really tells you how far can you go on a charge. And we always talk about range anxiety. It's, I don't think we have a range anxiety problem anymore. Um, but back then the perception was uh, that range anxiety was keeping a lot of potential owners from buying a car. So I think there's a lot of emphasis on getting that range estimate accurate. So, so often with Tesla, um, it, it seemed to always have the, the battery advantage over the competition um, still to this day, I think, when you look at the longest ranges available. That's not a hardware thing, though, is it? It's, it's a software thing. Yeah, I, I do want to give credit to some of my hardware colleagues, <laughs> for sure. But definitely, um, you know, there's different philosophies. And, and generally, you know, I started my career at Honda. And just in general, if you have a spec sheet of a part, Honda will look at that and, you know, or GM or traditional OEM and say, okay, well, let me try to work that to about 80 or 90% of its rating. And that's the safe mark. At Tesla, uh, we look at that rating and we say, well, let me see if I can get to 110 or 120% of that rating. So just immediately there. And the way you open that up is, is through software. 
I mean, in layman's terms, I mean, everybody knows Google is successful because this 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 holy grail of an algorithm that they created so long ago, and that's kind of lit the foundation of their genius. Is it the same with Tesla? Does it come down to a single algorithm that really is running this whole thing? Yeah, and you know, your first question, you know, I don't want to say it's one thing, but definitely there's um, tricks of the trade that uh, we did at Tesla to maximize the amount of energy you can get um, in a charge. And the, the range, uh, ultimately people look at that and that means everything when they buy a car. And so um, what the software can do is, is maximize the charge. Uh, maybe a, a competitor to Tesla might go to 95% state of charge. Uh, Tesla, we will go to 100.0%, for example. Um, on the bottom and a competitor will go to, uh, let's say, uh, two or three percent state of charge. Tesla will go to minus two or three percent. You know, so we really um, at times um, know uh, how to maximize that energy usage. And the, the reason why I think um, other uh, OEMs or suppliers choose not to is how it impacts uh, the cycle life, because typically if you charge too much, you can degrade the battery. And if you discharge too much, you can degrade the battery. Yeah, I was going to say so often now, essentially, in your owner's manual of a new EV, it'll say, you know, charge to 80% and that'll kind of keep your battery alive. Yeah, which in general is is true. This software, this algorithm, is it constantly being improved improved upon? Is there room to improve it more? I mean, obviously, you're a pretty smart guy. I mean, do you lie awake at night thinking about that algorithm? Thinking <laughs> it, it can get you can squeeze 101 percent out of this thing. You know what? I, I, at Honda, I did a whole bunch of battery testing, and I think I was pretty insane sometimes because I described to uh, let's say my girlfriend or my wife what I did was I watched the voltage and temperature move over 12 hours in a day. And I just analyzed that data and I'm like, Oh, that's a strange phenomenon. So literally battery charging is like watching grass grow um, in general. Now, obviously when you fast charge, you, you, you see things move in the order of minutes instead of hours, which is uh, great, but it's still at the end of the day, not super exciting. So will the improvements in battery technology be more in the hardware moving forward, in the mineral composition, in the chemistry, as opposed to the software? I mean, is that where there's still, where there's possible room for expansion? Yeah, so I would say, so let, let me just back up one second. So if you take a lithium battery, and let's say we compare it to gasoline, it's ironic, which is more volatile, right? And you think gasoline is, wow, this thing's going to explode if I light a match. And it's actually not very easily combustible. A lithium battery in many ways is more ignitable than if you had a little bit of gasoline in your hand. So um, what Tesla does, uh, and this is not a secret, but they use a small high-energy cylindrical cells. If you look at more of the traditional AMs, they'll use larger format cells, which from the cell form factor is not as energy dense. And generally, if you get more energy compact in a very tight space, it's going to be inherently volatile. So in order to maximize battery usage, you really want to cram as much energy as you can, but then you get that volatility issue. And that's where the battery management comes in. And you know, its first priority, as I said, is about safety. So if we have the battery management system there that can protect the battery pack, 
it allows us to push the energy densities without sacrificing safety. So in the next five years, where do you see this battery technology going? Is it, is it still a constant race towards range? As you said at the beginning, range seemed to be the thing that consumers were obsessed about. Are we going to double range in five years? Is that even possible? I, I have some strong opinions here, and I'll try to be as short as I can. So back in the 90s, there was an organization called the United States Advanced Battery Consortium, or USABC, and they came up with metrics that said, what do I need on a battery cell to be competitive with a gasoline car. And there were two numbers that, that really stuck out. One was 150 watt hours per kilogram, or that's how much energy I have uh, per weight of battery. And then the cost metric was $150, coincidentally, uh, per kilowatt hour. And that's where, hey, this is now a cost competitive metric. So where we are now, the best lithium batteries are uh, approaching two times that number from 1990. And on the cost, uh, we're seeing cell costs around $100 per kilowatt hour. So that's reduced 50%. So as of today, based on those benchmarks in the mid 90s that you will no longer, I think, easily see on the DOE's website, because maybe that's a long time ago, EVs are competitive with gasoline vehicles in every metric. So what that means is, do we really need more energy density? My, my personal feeling is no. What we need is cost of entry to come down. And in that case, uh, I think what we need is more power because that allows us to shrink the battery pack. And by shrinking the battery pack, what that means is the vehicle ultimately gets efficient. It gets safer because I, again, have less energy. Um, the driving dynamics, by the way, improve. So zero to 60 could improve, braking performance, handling all improves. And then, you know, and by the way, it's, uh, it's safer. So it's a win-win um, all along. And then with the improved power, the fast chargeability becomes improved. So now, I, now if I have a car that is 200 miles range that I can charge in 10, 15 minutes, and there's charge stations everywhere, to me, that's a game-winning product. So that segues into where I was going to take this next, which was the 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 input to the battery system is the charging technology, and it seems it's grown by leaps and bounds in the last 10 years. Is that is there expansion for that to get down to this holy grail of a five-minute charge to 80%? Or are there, are there, are there kind of f the physics of electricity limit that possibility? Yeah, okay, this is a great question. So, um, so the equivalent power that you pump a gasoline station at is four megawatts. And to give someone a reference, the first fast charge stations that, have, that came out five years ago were 25 kilowatts. So now we're pushing fast charge stations around 250 kilowatts. So we're quite far away from that four megawatt level. Now, an EV doesn't need to fast charge at four megawatts because inherently it's 90% efficient compared to roughly 25% efficient. So. Um, really to get to that five, 10 minute uh, fast charge station, we need to have about close to a megawatt charger at the current battery pack size. However, what I was talking about earlier, shrinking the battery pack size, if I can shrink the energy density, now with the 250 kilowatt charger, if my vehicle is efficient and my battery can put out a lot of power, um, you know, a five, 10 minute charge is feasible in the future. Not now. 
as it's progressed in the last 10 years anyway, it seems to be working on both sides, the charging technology and the battery size, the battery composition is all working towards their, you know, an apex where this thing will meet. Yeah. Although I feel like the charging side, there's um, in some ways there's more challenges than on the battery side. Sounds ironic. Everyone says, Hey, the battery is the limiting factor. The battery is the limiting factor. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think um, if charging, um, obviously, there's a lot of massive investment being done by by the world um, in uh, fast charge infrastructure. Um, but the cost to operate that equipment is prohibitive in a lot of areas because of things called demand charges. So I think there needs to be a little bit of, of political will, particularly in the U.S., to, hey, how do I make uh, fast charging more affordable? Um, and I think that will just really just amplify the acceleration of electric vehicle adaptation. Right, right. So, so I mean, you have a fascinating experience in electric vehicle technology. You, you were literally there, I mean, it almost seems like before day one, 1990. Had someone told you then when you started that in terms of EV adoption in 2021, we'd, bear, we'd be where we're at today, would that, be, would that please you or kind of disappoint you? Uh, yeah, no, I, I am uh, pleased. I'm very pleased. I feel like we are a little bit in an iPhone moment in 2007, where the iPhone came out. And in 2009, everyone had a smartphone. Um, I think the lithium battery technologies have improved. And like we said, fast charging is improved. And now many electric vehicles are superior than the gas equivalent. And there's a demand. COVID has allowed people in other parts of the world to see blue skies for the first time in their lives. So the world now is demanding electric vehicles. And and we're also seeing, I mean, my, my first show of this season, uh, we talked about all the new vehicles coming to Canada, all the new EVs. And it almost seems like we've been talking about these cars for so long, but they're actually showing up now. And and now it's giving people choice, right? It's not just a Nissan Leaf or a Tesla. It's It's pretty well pick the manufacturer you like and they've got an EV. I think homeowners don't have a good excuse to not buy an EV now. Of course, you and I, you, you're in Southern California. I'm in Vancouver. We live in areas there there has been good EV adoption. I think in British Columbia last year, one out of 10 vehicles sold was an EV. In your mind, I mean, that that's not a tipping point. So in your mind, what is the tipping point? What will, what will be the metrics that says we've tipped over? Yeah, no, I think we need to um, see 50% or more ownership. And to me, uh, the rest of the world, and uh, I'll just point to my mom. She lives in a condo in Long Beach and she has a Tesla and she has to find the supercharge station to charge it once a week, like you would a gas station. And uh, uh, why can't she get a plug at her parking spot in her condo? There's things like homeowners association, there's uh, the utility company near, nearby and everything is creating a hurdle for her to do that. So um, unfortunately, I think um, uh, I'm not a big fan of doing businesses where the government has to help enable the technology. But if the governments provide the nice incentives, uh, so like people who live in apartment buildings um, can charge, um, then it's, it's lower cost for them. Um, you could buy some very nice used electric vehicles or less than ten thousand dollars, and it costs less than to you know less to operate than a gas car. So, why aren't uh, you know the blue collar working class able 
to buy these vehicles, it, it comes down to their place of residence not supporting uh, easy charging and their place of work not supporting charging. Right. So it, it's it's like the scientists and the engineers have done their job. They brought these things and now it's up to, as you say, reluctantly government regulations and things like that to kind of set the field so everybody can go out and participate in it. Yeah. And I wouldn't say regulation, but, you know, let's say it'd be nice if, uh, let's say, you know, the place of where you work had, uh, you know, charging availability, right? How many people would then go out and buy an electric car, right? So how do we create the right incentives? And from the employer standpoint, um, you know, there's, a, a, you know, societal investment that needs to be made. And many companies now are realizing, uh, you know, make investing in green technology attracts uh, people that you'd want to work for you anyway. And investment too. That's right. That is right. I mean, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. You're 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 so uh, experienced with the technology. Tell me about your company, Automotive Power. And, and I should say to listeners, it's automotive, two words, power. What What's that all about? Yeah, so uh, AMP is our, our initials. Um, and ironically, just before I say that, we are getting a new building. We've been growing so much and we're putting solar panels on the building and uh, we're living in a, we're working in a blue collar neighborhood. So we're going to hopefully in about a month have uh, eight public uh, available, you know, chargers for the community around there because I want to make sure like whatever uh, fruition that I've received from being involved with electric vehicles, I do my best to give them back. Um, so AMP, we look at, battery and charging holistically. If you look at a battery pack, um, there's typically a battery management system which controls the discharging. And ironically, we've been talking about charging. Of course, that controls putting energy back in the battery. And traditionally, those have been thought of orthogonal skill sets. Typically, battery management requires guys who understand physics and algorithms and people who do chargers understands power electronics and mechanical engineering and heat. Um, and we've kind of converged on those skill sets. So we, by doing that, it allows us to maximize battery utilization. So what we talked about earlier, AMP's uh, battery management charging technology can get longer runtime, longer lifetime, and faster charging than our competitors. And we provide hardware and software solutions for um, anyone who's in what we call e-mobility, and whether that's driving a car, moving a scooter, or flying an aircraft. Uh, if you want it electric, uh, we're a supplier that can provide that technology. Fantastic. And how long have you has the company been in existence? Uh, not quite four years. We started out in July of 2017. You know, I said that was the last question. I have one last one. It's kind of a, a bit of an around the corner. But when you mentioned battery systems, I'm a big fan of Formula E. And a big reason it was brought about was to work on software battery management do you think there's there's things to be found in that kind of racing in, in that world? Yeah, no, I, I love Formula E and it's created a lot of momentum and uh, there's been a lot of uh, great engineering involved. And right now they're, uh, you know, they've done like some, uh, I think this year they, they changed the format a little bit before there were two cars. So definitely you're seeing advancements in battery management and, and racing is, and, you know, just being from Honda, racing is a, an amazing way to develop technology. And so I, you know, like to see that better. And I like to see Formula E be, you know, more popular than Formula One one day. And it's ironic, but Pikes Peak, uh, which is a hill climb, it, you know, EVs 
win that. I don't think people realize that, but uh, EVs hold the record for Pikes Peak because they don't have a problem at, uh, getting oxygen at 15,000 feet. That's right. I think it's a VW that currently holds that, a VW electric. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your technical experience with us today. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Andrew. That's Anil Periani, CEO of Automotive Power. When the definitive book of the EV revolution is written in a few decades' time, there is little doubt Anil Periani's contributions will be duly recognized. His work on Tesla's seminal battery management system algorithm alone qualifies him for a good number of pages documenting his achievements and vision. Yet through his company Automotive Power, his story is still being written, and given his track record and experience, I have no doubt Anil still has much more to contribute to electric vehicle advancement. I hope you enjoyed listening to him as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. That's it for this episode. Much thanks to my guest, Anil Periani, producer extraordinaire Darm McWana, and you for joining me on another electrifying journey down the EV highway. We always welcome your comments and criticisms via email at pluggedin at postmedia.com. For your dose of all things automotive, be sure to check out driving.ca, where you'll find the best in breaking news, videos, and reviews. You'll also be able to access a new series of virtual auto events called Driving into the Future. By registering, you can listen and engage with a virtual panel of leading figures in the Canadian and global automotive and energy sectors. Visit events.driving.ca to sign up for free. And be sure to subscribe to Plugged In wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode and you'll also be able to listen to all the episodes from seasons 1, 2, and 3.